Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1854, British forces were involved in the Crimean War against Russia. In general, it was a poorly run affair, with the highlight of incompetence being the charge of the Light Brigade a military disaster that resulted from petty jealousy and clueless command. One result of this poor management was a shocking treatment of the sick and wounded at the hospital at Skatari. Many soldiers died simply through lack of proper hygiene and care. In England, a young lady by the name of Florence Nightingale read of the conditions and wanted to do something about it. As a high-bred lady of Victorian England, society's expectation of her was to marry well, breed well and produce many little upper-class mud magnets for her husband. Fortunately, for the world at large, she said, in what I assume was a well-educated and well-enunciated voice, <clears throat> Bugger that, you can shove your Victorian standards up your kyber. I'm off to the Crimea. And I'll bet you sounded exactly like that. In doing so, she laid the foundations for what would become the expected standard for military nursing through the remainder of the 19th century and throughout the 20th century. 61 years after she lobbed in the Crimea, women from the newly created nation of Australia would honour Miss Nightingale's example and follow their countrymen into the most destructive conflict the world had ever seen, and would continue to do so in every conflict since, ultimately becoming the Royal Australian Army Nursing Corps. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everybody and welcome back. Before we kick off this episode, I'd just like to take a moment to thank those of you who have been following us on Facebook and Instagram. Please feel free to share it around your family, friends, casual acquaintances, the crazy old man down on the corner, whoever really. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners so far. With only three main episodes, we've had more than 500 listens, which is about 495 more than I ever thought we'd get. So thank you to everyone for listening in, and a special shout out to Faith Glover, who sent a wonderfully encouraging message on the Facebook page. Thanks Faith, and I should have one of those episodes up and running within the next couple of months. And now, on with the show. The Royal Australian Army Nursing Corps, not to be confused with the Royal Australian Medical Corps, has been following Australian soldiers, sailors and airmen around the world for over 100 years. You can be forgiven for thinking that the Nursing Corps began with the first AIF in World War I, and it's perfectly okay to think that, because that's exactly what I thought. But like many of us, I forgot about the little war which occurred about 15 years before. You know, that South African one, the Boer War. I wrote a book set during that war, and even I forgot about it when I first began research for this episode. But anyway, onwards. The genesis of what would become the Nursing Corps was in 1898, when a small army nursing service was formed in Sydney on the 13th of August. It consisted of one lady superintendent and 24 nurses and was something of a reserve just-in-case kind of setup. The just-in-case became just as well a year later when the Second South African War, more commonly known as a Boer War, kicked off. Australia was still a collection of British colonies at the outbreak of the war, so rather than heading over as a combined Australian force, each colony sent its own contingents. 
The New South Wales and Victorian mobs decided to send detachments of nursing sisters to accompany the troops. And just to show how generous the authorities were at the time, many of the nurses had the privilege of covering their own expenses, i.e. they had to get themselves there. Nice, huh? But keep in mind, this was not yet 50 years since young Flo lobbed in the Crimea, and the military old boys club was still trying to wrap their head around the concept of women serving in military roles. The initial detachment of nurses totaled 14, but over the following three years, nurses from the other colonies joined their sisters, and a total of 60 would eventually serve in South Africa. Upon arrival, they were scattered through the country to serve in various British military hospitals, tending a few wounded troops but mostly taking care of sick and diseased men. It appeared that not much had been learned from the Crimean experience and many of the hospitals were an unhygienic mess. Many patients suffered from typhoid contracted through contaminated water, just as they had at Skatari. In general, the nurses were aged between 25 and 40 and were all unmarried. Like their brothers in uniform, they shared a sense of loyalty to the Empire and just like their brothers, they suffered the same prejudices from the British military establishment. All of them were viewed as mere colonials, although their skills were often rated highly. Three nurses, Matron Martha Bidmead and sisters Elizabeth Nixon and Marion Rawson, would be awarded the Royal Red Cross for their service. Sister Fanny Hines of Victoria has the dubious honour of being the first Australian nurse to die during overseas service. Her friend, Sister Anderson, wrote, She died of an unexpected pneumonia contracted in devotion to duty. She was quite alone, with as many as 26 patients at one time, no possibility of assistance or relief and without sufficient nourishment. Paints a pretty grim picture of the conditions the nurses faced. Unfortunately, Sister Hines would not be the last to lose her life. Over the following century, others would die of disease, some from wounds of their own and some through atrocities committed by enemy troops. At the end of the war, the federal government gave consideration to the implementation of a nursing reserve, consisting of trained nurses who were qualified and willing to serve in field hospitals and base hospitals when required. This reserve became a reality on the 1st of July 1903. At the outbreak of war in August 1914, waves of volunteers came forward to serve in the Australian Imperial Force, the AIF, and it wasn't only the blokes rushing forward. Those ladies who satisfied the criteria also came forward with just as much enthusiasm. Those in the reserve were called up and any others who were suitably qualified and single were accepted. Yes, they had to be single. I mean, obviously keeping the family house clean was of more vital importance than helping to treat sick and wounded soldiers. Fun times. Anyway. All around the country, training grounds sprung up to accommodate the eager volunteers flocking to the colours. As you'd expect, whenever a bunch of blokes congregates together in great excitement like this, occasionally their exuberance will lead to injury. The ladies of the nursing service would get good practice in dealing with the young men they would be responsible for patching up on foreign fields. A strong bond would develop between the soldiers and the nurses, with many nurses identifying with a specific battalion. For example, Sister Alice Kitchen, the nurse who Patsy Adam Smith follows in her book Anzacs, strongly identified with the 8th Battalion from Victoria. The early days of her diary, on the transport ships and while training in Egypt, are full of accounts of pleasant evenings spent with the officers of the 8th, her interactions with the young men and the excitement of what they were all undertaking. All too soon, the tone of her entries would change entirely. By mid-April, it was obvious that there were doings to transpiring as troops were being moved on from the training camp. Now, one of the many books about Gallipoli that I have at home contains a very compelling insight into what it was like for nurses on the hospital ship, the Gascon, on that first day. But of course, now that I want to quote from it, I can't find it, so I'm going to have to paraphrase. In describing the chaotic conditions on board, the sister tells how she had been sent to a section of the ship by one of her surgeons. 
On the way, she comes across a young soldier, on his own, looking for someone to help him. She says, A young man, little more than a boy, stood in front of me holding his eye in his hand. The eye was still attached and the poor man was hoping for some kind of assistance. In the bustle of activity, I couldn't think of anything else to do, so I took out my scissors, cut the eye loose and directed him to find an orderly to bandage him up. I left him standing there, holding his eye as I continued to the other end of the ship. The sister in question was in her early 20s, on a ship on the other side of the world, surrounded by seriously wounded men. It was a far cry from nursing in clean, calm hospitals back in Australia. The hospital ships hung off the coast until their replacements arrived and then headed off to the hospital at Alexandria. Here, other nurses, including Sister Alice Kitchen, took over their care. The reality of war quickly sunk in and gone with the light-hearted diary entries. Now her records contain comments such as, It is all too dreadful, and every day we hear of someone we knew being killed or wounded. Or, Another poor abdominal died last night, had no operation. If they are operated on, they die, and they mostly die if nothing is done. Before long, Sister Kitchen was taking her turn on the ships. Due to the distance from Gallipoli to Alexandria, about a thousand kilometres, field hospitals were set up on the nearby island of Imbros and Lemnos. The conditions for the 3rd Australian General Hospital on Lemnos were very inadequate for the first couple of months. The few available tents were given over to the wounded, meaning many of the nurses slept outdoors. As tents started to arrive, conditions improved a little, but there were always constant shortages of just about everything. One theme runs through most of the diary entries from the nurses on Lemnos, the lack of water. On 9th of August, as the wounded from the August offensive from places like Lone Pine and the Neck began to arrive, Matron Wilson noted 150 patients lying on the ground, no equipment whatever, had no water to drink or wash. The third AGH was set up on a barren, exposed patch of ground, and as summer turned to autumn, conditions got even worse. Nurse Louise Young described what it was like as the autumn storms blew in. Hardly a night or day did not pass that a tent did not collapse altogether. I don't think I shall ever get over my dread of wind again. Night after night, every bit of canvas creaking, shaking, straining, and your mind always wondering which would collapse next. Hardly a ringing endorsement. Despite it all, these amazing women continued to provide the best possible care to the wounded soldiers. Without doubt, many would have died without the dedicated attention delivered by exhausted, hungry, thirsty, and sometimes grieving women. In many cases, the nurses had brothers, cousins, and friends in the firing line just a few miles away, any one of which could be on the next stretcher brought on board the ship or through the tent flap at the hospital. But... Just as it was for the soldiers, Gallipoli was just an entree for the nurses. France awaited most of them, while others followed the light horse to Palestine with their stories continued. Australian nurses first moved into hospitals in England at Harfield and Southall, and then to field hospitals in France. They were mostly accommodated in Nissen huts, prefabricated corrugated iron accommodation. Think of an old water tank laid on its side and cut in half. It's not exactly the Ritz. During the Australian attack at Pozieres, Wounded men would receive initial treatment at the casualty clearing station by medical corpsmen before being moved back to the hospitals. There was usually a significant time frame between the CCS and the hospital and during that time the blood and the mud dried out and the bandages were almost literally glued to the wounds. It was up to the nurses to remove these bandages and a bit of uniform before the doctors could do their work. Assistant Belstead describes the work. The next few days was a continuous stream of wounded, each one seemingly as bad as can be. Eight theatre teams working day and night, yet it seemed impossible to cope with things, and the men were such bricks, lying on their stretchers, waiting for their turn on the operating table. 
If one had time to think, we would have just been weeping hysterical women, but it was only time to do. It was only afterwards that one thought and realised how, as a matter of necessity, we had done little or nothing for those who had died. In the early stages, nurses went no further forward than the field hospitals. But as techniques improved with the treatment of wounded troops at the CCS, it became clear that the expertise of the nurses was invaluable, and some were soon sent forward to assist surgical teams. For the first time, nurses were close enough to the front line to be at direct risk of injury themselves. On the night of the 22nd of July 1917, Claire Deacon was serving with the 2nd Australian Casualty Clearing Station at Bois Arbes near Armentiers when an air raid warning was sounded. Rather than taking shelter in the bunkers, Claire, who was off duty at the time, and two other nurses ran into the hospital to rescue patients. They risked their lives by evacuating them from the burning building while the station was being bombed. Later, in England, Claire was awarded the military medal, which was personally pinned on by King George V. In July 1917, Sister Rachel Pratt was on duty at a casualty clearing station in Beaulieu when a German bomb exploded near her tent. She was hit in the back and shoulders by flying shrapnel, which punctured her lung. Despite being seriously wounded herself, she continued to care for her patients, making sure their wounds were treated, right up until she collapsed. She was awarded the military medal for bravery under fire. Following surgery in Britain, Pratt was posted to various Australian auxiliary hospitals before returning to Australia at the end of the war. As a result of her war service, she suffered from chronic bronchitis for the rest of her life. These are just a couple of examples of the bravery of these nurses, but of course these were only the exciting adrenaline pumping examples. Day in, day out in both the CCS and field hospitals, these women faced the hardships and horrors of seeing broken, bloodied and dying men. The long hours, poor diet and primitive living conditions pushed the nurses to their physical and mental limits, but they still forged on. A different, but just as impressive, kind of courage. The other main area in which Australian nurses served was the North African campaign following the Anzac Mounted Corps through Sinai and Palestine. Unfortunately, records relating to these nurses and the conditions they face are as rare as rocking horse uh, manure. Like their counterparts on the Western Front, they were still dealing with wounds from bullets and bombs, there was less mud, but the desert brought its own unique challenges. Small cuts often festered into desert sores, and although not debilitating in the main, proper treatment was required in order to hit the men fighting fit. The desert war was more mobile than the Western Front. As the fighting moved on, the wounded had further to go to reach the hospitals, being bounced around in ambulance carts over rough tracks. As you can imagine, that kind of movement wouldn't do much for broken bones or recently stitched up wounds. Again, it was the nurses who treated these men when they finally arrived, and had to deal not only with the result of the fighting, but also the results of the rough journey. One lady who does have at least some mention in the records is Matron Rose Creel of the 14th Australian General Hospital. The letters and postcards of nurses who served under her at the 14th AGH described a matron who was kind, firm and just. One year recruit to the 14th AGH wrote to her mother, Matron is so good to our girls though we won't admit it to anyone. Once acute casualties were appropriately managed, Creel allowed her nurses to care for their sick and wounded brothers, friends or loved ones. She attempted to give her nurses additional leave when they had friends or brothers in town on military leave. At an administrative level, Creel had the double task of keeping two Australian matrons-in-chief, Miss Tracy Richardson from Melbourne, and the matron-in-chief in England, Miss Evelyn Conyers, Horseferry Road, London, fully informed. She was also responsible for chaperoning white Christian women in a religiously diverse country as they cared for thousands of men. She was a disciplinarian, 
but staunchly defended any accusation of misconduct laid against her nurses with vigour. For her services in Egypt, Machen Creel was awarded the Royal Red Cross First Class. Creel's 14th AGH had an average of 30 nurses at any given time. In November 1916, they were responsible for about 570 patients. Following heavy fighting at Magdeba and Rafa, that number rose to over 900, and by May 1917, after the Battle of Gaza, to 1,140. Compare that to the modern nurse-to-patient ratio of around one nurse every four patients, and you get an idea of the workload. During the First World War, Australian nurses served in 192 locations in Egypt, Lemnos, England, France, Belgium, Germany, Italy, Greece, Turkey, Salonika, Palestine, Mesopotamia and India, as well as on 39 ships. There is no complete official nominal role of nurses for World War I, so it is difficult to determine the exact number of Australian nurses who served. According to the Australian War Memorial, 2,139 nurses served with the Australian Army Nursing Service and 130 with the Queen Alexandra Imperial Military Nursing Service. Of those nurses who served overseas, for whom there are detailed statistics, seven were under the age of 21, despite the official minimum aging 25, 1,184 were aged 21 to 30, 947 were aged 31 to 40, and 91 were 41 or older. 25 nurses died from injuries or from disease whilst on active service, and 388 were decorated for bravery in the face of danger. Initially, I thought I'd be able to cover the entirety of the Australian military nursing involvement in just this one episode. How wrong I was, dear listener, how wrong I was. But if nothing else, I'm flexible, so I'll be breaking it up into two or maybe even three episodes. Probably three or two. I don't know. We'll see. Which means you'll just have to keep an eye out as more episodes are produced. We will pick up the storyline of the amazing women, later to be joined by amazing men, who have made up the Australian Army Nursing Corps as we go along. So, have you enjoyed that episode? If so, please feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under amhpodcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. And thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Mm-hmm.